Well, let me encourage you to do two things, uh, if you would, if you'll uh, play along with me, as it were. One is uh, to grab hold of this uh, handout sheet that was uh, hopefully tucked inside the bundle that you were given on the way in. Um, I think you'll find it helpful if you have that, because then you'll see where I'm going um, in the the next uh, uh, 25 minutes or so. And uh, the other thing you could do is uh, pick up a Bible and uh, turn not to the reading that we had, but to chapter 50 of Genesis, uh, because that's really where we're going to start um, tonight. Page 56 in the Church Bible, the book of Genesis and chapter 50. Well, while you find those things, let me ask you, uh, have you seen this film? Uh, the Sixth Sense, starring Bruce Willis. Have you seen that film? Uh, no? One or two of you? A few nods? What about this one? The Usual Suspects. Have you seen that one? Uh, yeah, some of you. Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you won't have a clue. Um, they are films that um, uh, you only understand properly when you get to the end. Do you know that? You know, you watch all the way through this, and you it's quite, it's quite, I quite like this one, it's quite thrilling. And then you get to the end, you go, oh, now I realise why all that was happening. Now, when I was uh, talking about some, some colleagues of mine about that, they said, same with The Usual Suspects, you ought to watch that. So I watched that on Friday, same thing happened all the way through. My wife and I were saying, what's going on? Then at the end, oh, everything became clear. Now, that was, that's films, but much of life is like that, isn't it? I've spoken to many Christians who, reflecting on often tough times in life, or maybe circumstances, they look back and they, they say, you know, I wasn't really sure what was going on, but now I can see what the Lord was doing. Have you ever had that experience? Now I see what he was doing. That was a really tough time. I didn't understand, but now I see it. Now, that is certainly the case uh, in life. We will see it is the case for the whole of the Christian life, but it is certainly the case if we are to understand Genesis uh, chapter 37 to 50. We have to look at the end and then we go, oh, now I see. That's why we're starting at chapter 50, even though we're going to spend most of the evening in chapter 37. Um, Look with me at Genesis chapter 50 verse 19. If you don't know what's gone on in chapter 37 to 50, it doesn't matter at the moment, I'll explain that in a moment. But just look at these amazing verses which control the whole of the Genesis narrative from chapter 37 to 50. Uh, Chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph said to them, that is to his brothers, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? And then this is the verse. You, his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. Uh, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but all the time that you were trying to do me harm, God intended it for good. Over the next five weeks, we'll read how Joseph was sold sold into slavery by his brothers, how he was falsely accused and wrongly imprisoned in a foreign land. We'll see how all that eventually led him to become the second most powerful man in Egypt, the most powerful man. Uh, place in the world and how the Lord used him then in that position, second in the land to rescue many from starvation as the whole world was gripped by seven years of famine you see Joseph was struck by calamity after calamity but here at the end of the story we're told how to understand every aspect of the narrative and certainly when we go back to chapter 37 in a moment how to understand that when his brothers sold him into slavery they had only one thing on their minds verse 20 of chapter 50 they intended to harm Joseph that's what they were out to do but verse 20 God intended it for good even as these brothers did their worst God was at work doing his best. 
here is a great paradigm for the way God works his purposes of salvation out for the whole world through the whole of history. Despite the evil deeds of men, now I'm going to change that, through the evil deeds of men, God brings salvation. Now if you think that's an overstatement, just think hundreds of years on from this moment. Uh, Think of the example of the Lord Jesus himself. As Jesus was crucified, the evil deeds of men were being used to bring about the salvation of men and women. Uh, Just uh, keep your finger in uh, Genesis chapter 50 and flick with me to Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 22, page 1093. I've put the, uh, the reference there on the handout sheet and you'll see how the New Testament says exactly the same thing. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, page 1093. Men of Israel, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. This is Peter uh, speaking on the day of Pentecost. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Now do you see how that is remarkable? Uh, God was in control, verse 22, and yet evil men, wicked men, were doing their best. Do you see? Here are wicked men putting Jesus to death, and yet God is in control of it all. The very people who are against God and his plans, God was using to bring about his purposes. And you see exactly the same in chapter 4 of Acts. Chapter 4, verse 27, just over a page. 4.27 Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. You see, evil men doing their, their worst against God and his holy servant Jesus. Verse 28 They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that remarkable? Evil men acting to cause harm to Jesus all the time, God intended it for good. Now, do you see how powerful you must be? Do you see how powerful God must be? You have to be very powerful indeed to get evil men who are against you and who are opposing your purposes to actually be doing your bidding for you. That is the God that we follow. Now, as we turn back to Genesis, how wonderfully reassuring this is. No matter what it looks like, God is working his purposes out. The worst acts of hatred and violence against God's people will not thwart God's plans. At the beginning of this month, I I was asked to speak at a conference in Eastbourne. And it's a great privilege for me to be there, actually. Um, uh, I I was really uh, moved and and, and blessed by some of the things that were going on never mind what I did but what what the other things that were going on were remarkable I met for the first time face to face although I've been in the same room as him before but I met with him and and talked with him the Archbishop of Northern Nigeria Ben Kwashi and he told that conference of some eight, eight eight or nine hundred people he told the conference that when Christians in Northern Nigeria go to church they have thrown stones thrown at them Well, that isn't the worst of it. When they then get to church, this is happening now. This has probably happened today, this Sunday, as people in northern Nigeria, Christians in northern Nigeria, have been waking their way to church. They have had stones thrown at them. them. I'll get it out in a minute. What is worse, though, when they get to church, you know what they find? 
They have to clean off the faeces, the human excrement that has been deposited all over the church building by those who hate Christianity. Can you imagine coming in here and the people that hate us have done their business all over the pews. That's the first thing you do when you turn up at church. For years, Christians have been murdered and churches have been burned in that part of the world. And yet, despite such opposition, the church is growing. Archbishop Ben Quashi told how 195 new congregations were planted in four years. He explained that the diocese became so large they had to start a completely new diocese. We're thinking of doing a church plant of 50 people. They plant a whole diocese. And when they planted the diocese, they then had another 180 congregations planted in the next few years. It is astonishing church growth. The church is growing at such a remarkable rate, he can't keep up with it. And asked why the church is growing so rapidly, he said, I don't know. Because there's no reason for it to grow when when you go to church, you get stones thrown at you. And when you go in the church, human excrement is on the pew. But do you see how that is just a little example demonstrating Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Wicked people intend to harm Christians but God intends it for good, the saving of many lives. This is what is happening throughout history as God brings about his purposes for his world. That is the great backdrop to what is going on in the whole of history and that is the backdrop to the narrative that we'll be following over these next five weeks. So turn with me now to chapter 37. And as you do, that was the first word of introduction, one other quick word of introduction in Genesis 37. Those of you who know this section in the Bible will say, ah, great, it's all about Joseph. I want to tell you something. This is not a story about Joseph. Well, of course it is about Joseph. Joseph appears on almost every page. But Joseph is not the main character. Actually, the text itself tells us that. Look at Genesis chapter 37 and verse verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. That's a surprise. Surprise for any of us who know the story well. Certainly a surprise for Andrew Lloyd Webber. He wrote a musical based on these chapters and it was all about Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. Do you remember Lloyd Webber's search on the BBC a couple of years back for a Joseph? Joseph is the star of the West End musical. But this story is not about Joseph. Now, verse 2, this is the account of Jacob. Although I'm going to confuse you now because I'm going to tell you it's not even about Jacob. Well, who is it about? You're crying. I'm glad you asked me that question uh, because that's exactly what I want you to ask. You see, this phrase, this is the account of, it is a phrase that is regularly used through the book of Genesis as marker, as a marker I put down on the sheet um, where it comes This is the account of, each time that phrase is used, it marks the next stage in the story of the family through which God is working his purposes out. We've already seen that God is going to bring about his purposes. We've already seen that that he is doing that. Nothing can stop him. How is he going to do it? This is the account of. This is the account of the family through whom, the people through whom, God is going to work out his purposes. And so here in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2, as we come to this phrase, this is the account of Jacob, we're actually learning about God working out his plans for the universe. How he is fulfilling his promises of salvation through Jacob and his family. 
Now, before we finally get into Genesis 37, let me uh, ask you, what are the great promises that we should have in mind in this chapter? This is not just generally that God keeps his promises. There are some very specific promises um, that we are going to see God keeps. There's no need to turn back to them, but do um, uh, note them uh, on the sheet here. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the great promises to Abraham. Now, you would do no better if you remember only this tonight. You will do very well. Remember Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 for all your Bible reading and you will be in very good shape. At the moment, um, if you were to come to our house uh, uh, just before the boys and girls uh, go off to, uh, to school, um, uh, we uh, have our breakfast together and then we have a little Bible reading and uh, uh, we did uh, um, Jonah uh, and then I, when we came to the end of Jonah I said to them, what do you want to do now? They said, we want to do Exodus. And, oh dear, it's going to be difficult. Okay, we'll do Exodus. And every morning at, uh, at the moment, because we're only in Gen- Exodus chapter 2, as we've been going through chapter 1 and chapter 2, I start off by saying, Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3, what were the three great promises to Abraham? They've been hearing this now for about two weeks. And now my three little ones, Susanna, Bethan and Joshua, Susanna and and Bethan are eight, nearly nine, and Joshua is six, they can tell you the three great promises to Abraham. And so I'm sure you can too. What are the three great promises? Here they are. Uh, What did uh, God promise to Abraham in Genesis 12? He promised that Abraham would be, from him would come a great nation, many, many people. He promised that his descendants would come into a promised land, And thirdly, he promised that through one of Abraham's descendants, all nations on earth would be blessed. A numerous great people coming into a wonderful promised land who would be blessed wonderfully through one of Abraham's descendants. That is what God is doing in his world. He is gathering together a numerically great people from every language and tribe and nation. He is taking that people to the promised land, to the new creation for all eternity. And those people will be, uh, have the most wonderful blessing upon them in that they will be in relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember those three great promises, you understand the unfolding of the promises of God through the whole of history and through the whole Bible and you'll understand what Genesis 37 is about. Because as we read chapter 37 verse 2, this is the account of Jacob. We are reading how God is bringing about his promises through the line of Jacob and specifically here, how he will make Abraham's descendants a very great people because at the moment there's just 12 brothers. This is all about God working his promises of salvation out. Well, introduction over here. Tonight we'll see two surprises about the way God works out his promises. And the first surprise is, again, written uh, on the handout. The first surprise is the material that God works with. Here then, in the account of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, through whose line uh, God will fulfil his promises. What a surprise. What a surprise who he uses. God's chosen family are thoroughly dysfunctional. Have you noticed that? At first glance, this family may have appeared to be a nice family. You may have said, oh yeah, oh, Jacob's boys, they're a good bunch, aren't they? Oh no. Underneath all the respectability, they are a calamitous family. Look first at Jacob. Jacob, incidentally, is also called Israel, so don't get confused as we read through. Jacob, the daddy, is largely to blame for the mess the family is in. Look at verse 3. 
Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in in his old age. It's appalling parenting, isn't it? To love one child above all the others. It is a recipe for disaster. All the parents that I know go out of their way to ensure that they treat all their children equally, but not Jacob. My grandmother was so insistent on this, whenever she gave us our Christmas presents, we would also get another little present. And along with the other little, it was a little, little present, it had some money in it. Because if she'd spent £13.23 on me uh, and spent £15 on my brother, she wanted to give me the difference to make it up of £1, whatever it is, because I haven't written this down, I've only just thought of it, so I haven't worked out what that is. But she would give me the odd change right down to the last penny. She wanted to treat me exactly the same. as That's how parents, parents go out of their way to treat their, 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 their children equally, but not Jacob. Jacob bought Joseph a multicoloured coat. In 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 18, we're told that this uh, coat of many colours was a coat worn by royalty. Do you get the point? Joseph, Jacob treated Joseph like royalty. Joseph was not only the favourite, he was thoroughly spoilt. And verse 3 tells us why. Did you see it there? Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. Now there's more to that statement than meets the eye. It's not just that Jacob had a long wait before Joseph was born. You know, when that happens, that's wonderful, but it's not just that. The earlier chapters of Genesis tell us that uh, that Joseph's mother was Rachel. Now Rachel was Jacob's favourite wife. Jacob, you see, had four wives you can begin to get the idea that Jacob isn't doing very well here. He had four wives. He had six sons by Leah, his first wife, who was Rachel's sister. Rachel was the one he really loved, but he had to marry Leah first. That's another story altogether. <laughs> six sons by Leah. Then he had two sons by Bilhar. Now, Bilhar was kind of, she was like the home help, if you like. Not good news, is it? And Jacob then had another two sons by a woman called Zilpah. She was like the cleaning lady. I mean, just terrible. It's a murky business, this whole thing in Genesis. And the big point is this. Rachel, who was Jacob's favourite wife, the one he loved, after years of being barren, while all these other wives were having copious children, Rachel finally had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So Joseph, this is the important point. If you switched off, switch back on. Joseph was the eldest son of the woman that he loved. And Jacob had waited many years for Joseph to be born, verse 3. Joseph had been born to Jacob in his old age. That's why he loved him so much, because he was the eldest son, the heir, if you like, of the woman he really loved. Now by the time we reach chapter 37 of Genesis, Rachel, Joseph's mum, had died. And so Rachel, the love of Jacob's life, she's dead and so Joseph has become the emotional centre of Jacob's life. See, Rachel had been everything to Jacob. She's now dead and he transferred all of that onto Joseph. Joseph was everything to Jacob and what a disaster that is. If ever we try to make another human being everything to us, it is always going to end in tears. Because other human beings always let us down or other human beings die. We cannot have another human being being what basically God should be. But that was what Jacob did. And here we see it resulted in favouritism that poisoned the whole family. Look at verse 4. 
When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Well, I'm not surprised. That's Jacob then. Secondly, Joseph, to see what a dysfunctional family this is. Jacob's favouritism didn't do Joseph any favours. Look at Joseph. I don't know, have you ever, you know, when you've, when you've done, when you've sung the song, you know, poor, poor Joseph, what are you going to do? Hey, things ain't good for you. Hey, what are you going to do? When you've sung those songs, you think, oh, Joseph, he's, he's a really nice fellow. Do you think that, you know, nice coat, you know, all that sort of stuff. He's pretty cool. Don't believe it. Look at the text, verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Oh, yeah. Joseph was a snitch telling on his brothers. One of our children has got into it. It happened just before I walked out again tonight. She's in the habit of, 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 of coming to me and Caroline and telling tales about the other two. It is really a very unpleasant experience. It ruins family harmony. I said to her as I came out, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that news. One day she's going to come and tell me something that's really important. I'm going to say, I don't want to know. But... <laughs> anyway, that was Joseph, you see. He was a snitch. He told on his brothers. Don't you hate that when people do that? Worse, end of verse 2, he brought a bad or possibly a false report about them. He wasn't just saying, hey, you know, the brothers did this. He was actually making stuff up about them. Now, that tells you what kind of a fella Joseph had grown up to be. 17-year-old, snitches on his brothers, tells bad things to his dad. Joseph, you see, knew that he was the favourite and they knew that if he went to his dad with stories about his brothers, his dad would listen to him. So Joseph had grown up to be a thoroughly unpleasant fella. Don't get, don't get you know, swayed by that stuff about the nice coat and all that. He wasn't nice at all, thoroughly selfish. Now that becomes really obvious as we read on. You see, Joseph had dreams. Now the dreams are from God. We kind of see that as the story unfolds. But for now, the problem wasn't that he had dreams. The problem was what Joseph did with those dreams. Verse 5. Joseph had a dream. That bit's all right. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And as we read on, we discover why. Verse 6, he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood up while your sheaves gathered round me and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Uh, do you get any idea of what Joseph's like? He is oblivious to the sensitivities of his brothers. His brothers are already feeling that their dad doesn't love them. They already know he's the most favourite of the lot. And then Joseph goes and blurts out the I'm gonna, you're going to bow down to me. No wonder they hated him. Did Joseph learn? Not a bit of it. Verse 9. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers again. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to him. When he told his father as well his, as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, I bet they were. But his father kept this all in mind. Now to grasp how serious this is, we need to feel our way into their culture. This was an extremely hierarchical and patriarchal society. In this culture, as in many Asian cultures today, there was a strong ethos of honouring elders. In this culture, the younger always bowed to their elders. 
And so culturally, these dreams are radically different from anything society believed was possible. Now, it is going to happen. These are from God. But you see, Joseph is just oblivious to all the cultural sensitivities. He's been so thoroughly spoiled by his father that he believed that he was like Jose Mourinho, that he was the special one. Now, you're getting the picture of what Joseph is like. Thoroughly selfish. He has no regard for the feelings of others, not even his father who loves him so much. Well, that's Jacob, the bad dad, Joseph, the bad boy, and now the brothers. What a bunch they were. Now, again, I blame their father, which is easy to say, but you can see why. Jacob didn't love them unconditionally, as he should have done. No wonder they reacted the way they did. But although I blame their father, remember, we are always responsible for our own actions and emotions. You can blame their father, but they're still to blame for the way they react and the emotions that are in them. And there's one emotion that runs very deep, very deep indeed. It's all the way through this. Verse 4, do you see it there? They hated Joseph. Verse 5, they hated him all the more. Verse 8, they hated him all the more. These brothers are full of hate. So much so that as we read earlier in verse 20, they were on the verge of killing Joseph. Only the intervention of Reuben, the eldest, stopped them. And even then, even though they'd been stopped from killing, still they sold him into slavery. Poor, poor Joseph, what are you going to do? Brought it all on yourself, that's what I think. Now, do you see, this is a thoroughly dysfunctional family. Jacob has made an idol of his son. Joseph has become a spoiled, insensitive, shallow, selfish person. The brothers are full of hatred. And here's the shock. Here's the great shock. These are the people God is using. It's stronger than that, actually. This is the family God has chosen. This is the family through which God has chosen to bless the whole world. Isn't that a surprise? These are the people God has chosen to take to the promised land. Is that a surprise to you? And when we look at this, we begin to see the difference between what we might call traditional religion and the gospel. Traditional religion tells me, here are some rules for right living. Traditional religion holds up examples of others we should aspire to be like. Traditional religion tells me to live the right life and God will bless me. Well, that isn't what the gospel's about at all. The Bible isn't full of good guys. There's not a good guy in sight in this story, is there? There's pride and hate and selfishness and idolatry and jealousy and there's everything actually that's in your heart and mind. The Bible's purpose is not to tell you and me how to live a good life because you and me can't do that. The Bible's purpose is to tell me how God's grace breaks into our lives, into our rotten, selfish lives. The Gospel is all about God taking the most undesirable of characters and how he rescues us from sin and brokenness. That's what this is all about. And that, I think, is why respectable middle-class British people find it so hard to accept the Gospel. Because respectable, middle-class British people like us believe we're good guys. You know, when you watch the films, don't you always think you're the good guy? You never think you're the baddie, do you? We like the idea that God chose us because we're nice and kind and respectable. 
And we like that idea because if that's true, and we've got a little thing in the back of our mind that suggests it probably is, if that's true, then in some way God owes us because, oh, he might have chosen us, but he chose us because we're good guys, really. So he owes us, doesn't he? At least we don't owe him everything. A while back I heard of a woman who became a Christian. She'd, um, she'd been to church for years before understanding this gospel, the gospel that says God chooses undesirable people. And then one day after years of attending church, the penny dropped, she understood the gospel. She understood that it, she was not a good person. She understood that she must be saved by grace, by God giving her what she didn't deserve. And when she understood that, she was completely transformed. She became completely sold out for Jesus. And the pastor asked her, why do you think it took so long for you to hear this message? And she said this, and I think this is really astute. If I was saved by my works, my efforts, my good life, then there'd be a limit to what God could ask of me. That's why I think the gospel of good works appeals to us. Because God can't ask me everything of me if in some way I've contributed something to him choosing me. Now do you see why we like that idea of us being something special? The Bible tells me the opposite. It tells me I'm nothing special at all. It says I'm just like one of these characters. Sometimes I'm like all of these characters wrapped up. I'm so complicated. But here's the good news. Here's the wonder of Genesis chapter 37. Here is a thoroughly dysfunctional family. Here are a bunch of people who deserve absolutely nothing from God and yet these are the people God has chosen to be his own. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know how pathetic and awful you are? Great! If you know that, you're ideal to be in God's family. This is great news for me because I'm not a nice fella. I'm not saying this just for effect tonight. I have all these emotions in me. I have the favouritism and idolatry of Jacob in me. The selfishness of Joseph is in me. The hatred and bitterness of the brothers is in me. It's all here. Isn't it in you as well? Thank God that he works with this kind of material. Two surprises about the way God works. The first surprise, the material God works with, and the second, the way God works. I passed my driving test at the second attempt. Anybody pass on the first attempt? Yeah, a few of you? Yeah, okay, well, talk to you afterwards. I pass, I, they say, the, 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 oh, third, four, five? No, Vanessa, really. Oh, sorry, shouldn't have mentioned five. Shouldn't have mentioned your name, Vanessa. Don't you? Anyway, that makes me feel much better about myself. I passed the day before my 18th birthday party and, um, and some, uh, some months later I borrowed my dad's car to go to town to buy a present for someone else. And as I went round the multi-storey car park looking for a car parking space, I took the corner a bit too wide. I wasn't going very fast, honestly, Dad. And uh, smashed up the near side wing of my dad's car. Did about £300 worth of damage. It was remarkable. I really wasn't going very fast. I, see, I still feel guilty about it. I feel I have to justify it now. He's not even in the room. Needless to say, it was a horrible moment. As I drove home in shock, a whole series of what might have beens went through my mind. What would have happened if, if I'd decided to park somewhere else? I would never have smashed up the car. What would have happened if, I'd, um, if someone else had returned to their car earlier and as I was going past, I didn't have to go up. I could have just gone on the lower level. 
What would have happened if the architect who designed the multi-storey car park years before had made it three feet wider? I mean, any of those things would have done. Now, as we read the second half of Genesis chapter 37, we can begin to ask a whole series of what would have happened if questions. You see, God gave Joseph these dreams, and so we read chapter 37. As we read chapter 37, we know that something remarkable is going to happen. Against all cultural expectations, the entire family is going to bow down to Joseph. And we know, because we've read chapter 50, God is going to use Joseph to save many people. That is going to happen, but the way this dream and these dreams come true is quite remarkable. The dreams begin to come through through a series of, may I call them accidents or coincidences? Of course they're not, but that's what they look like. From verse 12, there's a whole series of chance meetings. Let me run through them. Verse 13, Jacob, known as Israel, sends Joseph to Shechem to meet his, meet his brothers. Meanwhile, the brothers have moved on to a place called Dothan. Very important, because Dothan is a very remote place so that whatever happened there, no one's going to know about And We know what's going to happen there, but they didn't know that. In verses 14 to 17, Joseph just happened to run into a stranger who just happened to overhear where the brothers had gone. Otherwise, he'd have never gone on to Dothan. And when Joseph arrived in Dothan to meet the brothers, Reuben, verse 21, just happened to be there to stop them from killing Joseph. A whole series of events just kind of happened. And as we read them, we can begin to wonder, what would have happened if Jacob hadn't told Joseph to go to meet his brothers in Shechem? What would have happened if his brothers hadn't moved on to Dothan? What would have happened if Joseph hadn't met that stranger at Shechem who told him where to go? What would have happened if Joseph had been killed and not sold? The point is this, unless things happen just as they did, everyone dies. I mean, everyone dies. Because there is going to be a great famine that is going to take grip of the whole world. And these events which landed Joseph in Egypt happened to save hundreds of thousands of people. Had these things not happened just as they happened, all over the world, hundreds of thousands of people would die. And wait for this, this is the most important thing, the whole messianic line would die. This family would die out. Every one of these details had to happen. And most interestingly of all, as we read these verses, do you know, there's no mention of God. Not in chapter 37. God appears to be completely absent. Oh, we know, because we've read chapter 50, verse 20. God intended it for good. He was intending things, managing things down to the most minute detail. Isn't that reassuring? Isn't that wonderful? Think about all the calamitous global events that we hear about in the, in the, in all the time in the news at the moment. Global terrorism, global recession, global poverty, global warming. Isn't it reassuring to know that God is sovereign? That nothing will thwart his plans to redeem a people for himself. Nothing will stop God from taking a numerically great people to the promised land, the new creation, for eternity, and to bless them through Jesus Christ. Nothing is going to stop that. Isn't that great? See, Genesis chapter 50 is so helpful, God intended it for good. It is wonderfully reassuring as we read these events in chapter 37, for it tells us that God's redeeming love is completely compatible with terrible things happening. And you see, the things that happened to Joseph were terrible. Look at verse 23. 
When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the word stripped there is the word to use to skin an animal. His clothes were, were kind of ripped off him as if they were skinning an animal. And in verse 24, the word through is the word for dumping a dead body. See, Joseph was stripped and abandoned to death in this cistern. And then we read that while Joseph was down in the pit, verse 25, the brothers sat down to eat a tasty meal. And when we come to chapter 42, we'll read that Joseph pleaded for his brothers to save his life at that time. This is a horrible moment for Joseph. Okay, I know he's an obnoxious character, but nobody deserves this. This is cruel, this is brutal, this is violent. And God was using it to save people and indeed to save Joseph. Only because Joseph was sold into slavery was he saved from his pride and his selfishness. The Joseph at the end of the story is unrecognisable from the Joseph at the beginning of the story. Do you see, taking Joseph through this hardship was necessary to make Joseph the man he became. No one ever learned about their faults by merely being told about them. There's nothing like the school of life to teach us. That's what Joseph had to go through. And so as we look at Joseph, we see that if Joseph had been saved from the things that he wanted to be saved from, as he cried out, if he'd been saved, he'd have actually been lost because he was so thoroughly selfish. But in being lost, he was saved. Joseph had to go on a long, painful journey This is how Tim Keller puts it. God was caring as much for Joseph in his silence and hiddenness as he was in his most obvious times of intervention. All this, you see, was for Joseph's good. And all this was for the good of many, many people who'd be saved. Let me ask you to believe that. Do you believe that? If you believed that, think how strong you would be. Just think how you would cope with the most trying of circumstances. Do you believe that God is working his purpose out even when he seems hidden, when he seems far away? This is the way God works. This is the pattern of salvation that we see right through the Bible. And we see it supremely centuries later when another came to his own and his own received him not. We see it centuries later when this other one was sold for silver by those closest to him. When this other one was stripped naked and he cried out and it seemed that no one heard him. He saved people by being rejected by the very people he came to save. Evil men with hatred in their hearts intended to harm him, to kill him, but God intended it for good for the salvation of many people. See, as we go through the messiness of life, and life is messy, as we go through the pains of life, and I've heard again of people just today, somebody told me that they've just been made redundant. As we look at Jesus in those hard times of life, we can be sure that God loves us through it all. For Jesus fell into a deeper pit than Joseph ever did. His abandonment was worse than Joseph's ever was. And as we look at the cross of Jesus and as we take communion tonight, we can do that. We know God loves us. 
God has suffered. And so in the midst of our suffering, we can know he's not distant or aloof. And as we can look at the end from the beginning, because God has revealed the end to us, just as he did in Genesis chapter 50, he's revealed what's going to happen at the end. As we look at the end from the beginning, we can have deep confidence and reassurance in our present sufferings. Now please, don't misunderstand. It doesn't mean that we will understand everything. But we do know that God loves us. We do know that God is in control. We do know that God intends it for good. We know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him.